<clears throat> As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you to pray with me. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We think so much about light during this season of Advent because we know that the good news of the gospel is that there's light that's come and shown in the darkness. Um, and, and, and we see everything now through our Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who is the light who has come. And so I pray now that by His Spirit we may see all that is true in this passage this morning. And it may bless us that we may be able to live together with you and bring you glory. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Galatians and chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, please. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. New Testament letter, Galatians <clears throat> chapter 4, please. This is the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And we don't know the exact date when Jesus was born. Um, December 25th wasn't picked for historical accuracy. It was picked for some other reasons. And the date is set aside to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus. Now, what do we know? Approximately, uh, we mark our time uh, by the birth of Christ, the B.C., A.D. kind of thing. Now, um, what, B.C.E. and C.E. But, but we all know where the common or the current era uh, begins. <laughs> and we know that with the birth of Christ in the year of our Lord. So, so we know that, but, but uh, we don't know precisely when. The, the, the timing uh, that we have in the scripture that we know from God is it was in the month of fullness. Right? Because it says right here in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, right? when time was full, when it was ready to burst, when it, when it couldn't wait any longer, when, when everything was built up to a certain point, that, that's when uh, God sent God sent his son. Uh, everything was ready. And some say, well, it was because of the Roman peace at that time. It was a good time for Jesus to be born uh, socially, culturally, politically, spiritually. All those kinds of things were ready. And no doubt they were. Uh, but, but I think it's uh, uh, John Calvin who laid it out best. He said, the time which had been ordained by the providence of God was seasoned and fit. Therefore, the right time for the Son of God to be revealed to the world was for God alone to judge and determine. And he did, and it was the right time, because it's the time that God had determined that his son would be indeed a sent. Um, we realize it's God's world, and, and, it, and he has a purpose and plan. And so when he was ready, when he had made the world ready, 
It was the fullness of time. And Christ was sent at that point. Not a minute before, not a minute after. But in the fullness, the right, when the time was ripe and the time was ready. Now, before then, people just simply lived on, on hope. The, the illustration that we're giving here, he says, he, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as a child, is no different from a slave. Because he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his, by his father. It's a, uh, an allusion to a, a kid in, in, in the ancient world, a rich kid probably, uh, who has an inheritance. And uh, until his father says you can inherit it, he's placed under guardians to watch over him and to train him and to discipline him. And in his mind, uh, he's just like a slave. I mean, he doesn't have any of it yet, but, but a day will come. And, and that's a sense in which before Christ came, that, that there's a sense in which there were children like that waiting and waiting and waiting until the time set by the father, until we would see no uh, the inheritance that was was to come, to live with this kind of hope and expectation and anticipation. Um, you remember how all this came out. You remember that God created human beings in His image and all was good. But then you remember that the evil one came and tempted. And there was a rebellion in the hearts of Adam and Eve, our first parents. And they rebelled against God and when they did... Everything was affected. And everything was negatively affected by that. We know their relationship was affected. Their relationship with God was affected. The earth was affected and how they would work and how they would, how they would live. Uh, they were rebellious against God and decided to go their own way. And so the question was, what would happen? And by the grace of God, in His mercy, He made a promise. At that point in time, He made a promise. He said, there's going to be hostility, enmity, hostility between the woman and her seed and this evil one, so much so that a day will come when one will come from her and he'll bruise or crush the head of this serpent and destroy the evil one, even though his heel will be bruised. And, and right there we see it. Uh, and one Old Testament professor told me one time that the whole Bible is simply a footnote to Genesis 3.15. That that's where, that's where it's established. That one will come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. Everything else is just sort of playing that out. Because the big question would be then, this time was becoming fuller and fuller and fuller. Who would this one be? Cain, Abel, that didn't work out well. Seth, the substitute, well, no. Uh, and then it seemed like things got even worse after that. Uh, there was so much so that we read, that the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of people were evil continuously. And then we know what God had to do. He destroyed the world by way of flood, except for Noah and his family, who he graciously saved in the midst of all that. And so we see, well, it's still running, if you will. It's still moving. It's still filling up. Not, not as we anticipated necessarily. So how is this one? Who is this one to come? And, and how, will he, how will he be? Then a promise to this man, Abraham. Remember, God comes to this man, Abraham, seemingly out of the blue, Genesis chapter 12. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Great, whoever curses you, whoever curses uh, you, then I'll defend because it's like a curse upon me. From your seed, every family of the earth will be blessed. Oh, there it is. There it is. It's filling up. Time is filling up with this. And we wonder, when is this one going to come from his seed, from Abraham's seed, you see? Uh, and then we realize that the descendants of Abraham ended up being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And we go, well, what's up with this? 
Well, he's still filling up the time, you see. And he sends this one Moses to deliver. And he promises that there'll be one who's going to come, a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. And then he brings the people to live in his, his presence. And he gives them priests so that they, an unholy people, can be represented before God in sacrifices. And he says there's going to come a priest who's going to be greater than Aaron and all of this priesthood. There's going to be sacrifice, a sacrifice to come that's going to be greater than the sacrifice at Passover, greater than the sacrifice at Atonement. It will really sacrifice. It will pay for the sins of sinners. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 53. And they want a king, so David comes to rule them. He said, but, but, but a day's going to come and there's going to be the great king, greater than David, to rule over to rule over my people. And the prophets begin to come and they say, listen, something's coming. It's going to be a new covenant. Not like the old covenant, which, which you seem to break all the time. But there's a new covenant that's coming. And it's going to be the kind of covenant that, that's going to work in on, inside you, in your hearts, so that your hearts will be changed and my law will be written upon your hearts and your minds and, and you'll know me. And so I'll be your God and you'll be my people and your sins I'll remember no more and your iniquities I'll forgive. And, and so that's the way it's going to be. There's going to be peace. In fact, sorrow and, 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 and sadness are going to flee away and joy and rejoicing will and singing will replace all of that. Peace will come so much so that you're going to take all your weapons and destroy them. And you're going you're to beat them into plowshares so that there'll be great abundance and no longer destruction uh, anymore. And, and this one will come through this place in Bethlehem. <laughs> this little place, obscure not really known, small, through Bethlehem will come this, this one, you see. And then there's just a long wait. Another 400 years. And I, little did they know that time was filling up, time was filling up, time was filling up. And then, boom, uh, an angel shows up with this young woman who has never been intimate with a man, though she's engaged to be, to be married. And, and the angel says, you're going to have a baby. And this child will be the son of the Most High, the very son of God. And, and this child, you see, will be conceived in you by the Holy Spirit. And then the angel goes to this young man, the fiancé, which is fortunate because it would have been a big surprise to him to find out that his fiancé was pregnant. And so he, the angel comes and says, what's happened there has come from the Holy Spirit. And this child that will be born, you're to name him Jesus. For he'll save his people from their sins. Because you see, he'll be Emmanuel. The Emmanuel, the very Emmanuel that was talked about in, through the prophet Isaiah. God with us. That's the one. He's coming. And, and you can just, time is burst at that moment in time. And he's come upon us. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That God sent his sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of a woman, born under the law. So, so when Paul said he sent his son, what it means is that this son was already before he was born. Right? 
He sent him from somewhere. He sent him from glory because the son who was sent is the eternal son of God. What we call the second person of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He already was. And so he was sent and he was born of a woman, which means that he received then a human nature and a body. He was born. I mean, it's an amazing thing. We call it the incarnation, right? The enfleshment, if you will, of this Second person of the Trinity. Uh, we, we read about it uh, in John chapter, John chapter 1. And, uh, John chapter 1, you know, I hope, let me just encourage you, I hope that you read John chapter 1 like a dozen times during Advent. I do. It's, it's like, uh, it's just that passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was within, in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So He existed from all eternity, the glorious Creator of all that is. And then verse 14 has to be the most profound sentence in all the English language, I think, or any language, Greek and originally. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. I mean, really? The word became flesh and dwelt with that, that, that seed of Abraham. To bless all the families of the earth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father. Then in Romans 8, we read something very similar because this whole incarnation thing is so important to everything. In Romans 8, in chapter 3, it says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He sent his Son. And then, then this classic, we read it often uh, and recite it as... Um, as a, even a profession of faith, as, I, as many think uh, the early church did in Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he was really God. This form, this is his very nature, this is who he is who's in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of his deity, but this is a, a, an expression of humility. They emptied himself. He says, he says, I won't, well, he explains it next, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, uh, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. You see, he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his, but his right to grasp the glory that was really his. So he could walk around and, and no one would know. This is, I say this every Christmas time, and so you, you'll recognize it. But this, I think, is another wonderful poetic line. Not in the Bible, so not infallible, but true. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled, incarnate, deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. I mean, again... What a wonderful expression of this, this incarnation. It's veiled. They couldn't really see it at that time. Well, from time to time, the apostles, they would say, oh, I saw his glory, I saw his glory, I saw it. And then they'd see it in the resurrection and the ascension. But, 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 it was veiled, but here he was, God 
in the flesh. That's the very point of this, this incarnation. Then in Hebrews, in chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those uh, who are being tempted. You see, that's it. That's it. That's this incarnation. Now, as I mentioned when we had our profession of faith, the, the church struggled in the early centuries to, to grab a hold of what this really means. And they began to, to press. And, and, and I don't think we should be critical of them because this is a mind-boggling thing <laughs> that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. How can that be? And, and always what's captured at the end of all of these discussions is this magnificent mystery of two natures, one divine and one human in one person. Now, throughout the great discussions and the councils that surrounded these discussions, there's, there were those who, 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 could, who would grapple with it and say, but I, I get the fact that he could be God, but how can he be man at the same time? And then others would say, well, I could get how he could be man, but how could he be God at the same time? I mean, for instance, we, we, we can think of an of a omnipotent one who is God, and if you're thinking about God, you go, yeah, he's got to be all-powerful. He's got to be the creator. That's, that's who God is. You go, got that? And we can think of a little weak baby over here. But to think that they're the one and the same person, you go, ah. Right? How can that really, how can that really be? Well, well, maybe the God part is just really huge and takes over the, the baby part, the human part. Or maybe, maybe the human part is such that, well, we don't need the God part after all. How, how do both of these natures exist in one person? And then some others would come along and say, well, well, well maybe, uh, it's really two persons in one body. Well, but he just has one name, Jesus. Right? And so it seems, we read through the scripture just one person who does and who says and who is. So, so how can that? How can that be? The, the Council of Nicaea, when we use the Nicene Creed during this time of Advent, generally, um, was a council that uh, uh, grappled with this first issue of the deity of Christ. And so you can see very deliberately the wording. And in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. You see, he says, no, no, he's begotten, not made. He comes, he's the same substance of God. Birds beget birds. People beget people. Cats beget cats. 
Same substance, same thing. God is God. God of God, light of God, very God, very God. And then notice this. But he came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He didn't cease to be God, but now took on something that he wasn't. Man. That whole sense of it. The Apostles' Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We, we see all of that, don't we? Um, and so then, by the 5th century, we have a, a great uh, council called the Council of Chalcedon, which tried to lay all this out. And I, I smile when I say that because I'm so glad I wasn't there. I mean, how difficult would this be to write, to be able to describe this one who is God in the flesh, who is the Son of God, the Word became flesh and dwelling among us. If I could just read this, you can Google it and spend some more time with it if you'd like. It says, therefore, the following, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and one complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. I mean, what else do we say? Right? He was truly God and truly man, consisting of a reasonable body and soul. So he was really a human being, really a man. Of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, which means he was really God. And at the same time, of one substance with us as regards his manhood, really man, like us. Like us in all respects apart from sin as regards the Godhead. Begotten the Father before all ages, yet as regards his manhood begotten for men and for our salvation of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, Holy Begotten. Recognized in two natures, that is, God and man, fully God and fully man, without confusion, that is to say, they're not mixed up together. Got God and man, you stir them up a little bit and you have this something else. You know, just have these two, uh, without confusion, without change. So the human part of him doesn't affect the deity part of him and lessen that. The deity part of him doesn't change the humanity part of him and augment that. Without division, not two persons. <laughs> without separation, still one person. The distinction of nature is being in no way annulled, still divine, still human, by the union, but the character, characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same, only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of Him and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us and the creed of our fathers was handed down to us. You see that? Grab a hold of who he really is. Keep that in our heads in some way. Because it was necessary for our salvation that he be God. Because only God can save us. Human beings can't save themselves. One human being can't save another human being, no matter who he is. But God is the one who saves, you see. He's the only one who is infinite. He's the only one who's worth it. He's the only one whose life is that valuable. 
He's the only one who can be the mediator between God and man in, in this sense because He's the only one who knows Himself to be able to reveal Himself. He's the only one who can bring Himself to us in order to receive us to Himself. But He also has to be man at the same time. Why? Because we're the ones who need the help. We're the ones who've sinned. An animal can't stand for us. That was the, the problem with the old covenant. It was just provisional. It just pointed to the one who was to come. See, if Jesus had never come, none of the sacrifices in the Old Testament would have been effective. He had to come. It was his blood that would make them effective as they pointed and looked up to him, you see. An animal can't stand for a human being. Don't you know that would have been part of the insecurity of an Old Testament believer? I mean, all the sacrifice is going and you scratch your head and you go, but I sinned. This poor little lamb didn't sin. It's my favorite. I like this little lamb. In fact, he, he shouldn't die. He doesn't have a blemish on him. I killed the lamb the other day because he just wasn't worth anything. But this one, this is the perfect one. Why, why, why would I kill this one? You see, this one doesn't deserve to die. I do. But even if it did, it's just an animal. How can that stand for me? That's why, as I read from Hebrews uh, chapter 2, this, again, astounding paragraph. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through his death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to its effects, slavery to the fear of, of death. What's going to happen? For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that is human beings. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so he, as man, took upon himself the guilt of our sin, presented himself and on the cross. He said, Father, why have you forsaken me? Right then, you see, Right then, he experienced, he knew the real effect, the guilt of sin. And he satisfied, he extinguished the wrath of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So you see that. We see it there. He had to be God and he had to be man. And this he was. And so he, he did all of this for, for two purposes, uh, related purposes, one in, indeed flowing from the other, but both of them are important. Let me see if I can do this quickly. Um, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's the first part, to redeem them. Under the law, meaning at least this. That they were under the obligation to obey the law. And they were under also the penalty if they didn't. And they didn't. And we didn't. We're enslaved there. This word redeem is, is a word that's used in the days of Paul, often in the slave marketplace. 
that you would pay a price to free a slave. And the price that was paid, as you know, to free us is the blood of Jesus. And so he sent him so that he would die. That was the point of Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, he, he, he paid it. That's why he came. He came to die. Jesus knew that. You know, as you read through the Gospels, you get to sense, especially in Luke, but in all of them, really, that, that he's moving to Jerusalem and he knows why. He knows why he's going to... He keeps, keeps telling his disciples, oh, he drops this from time to time, we're going to Jerusalem and the chief priests and the elders are going to try me and they're going to kill me and I'm going to be raised on the third day. And so he keeps telling them, they don't get it, they don't understand, but, but, but he knows why he came. He came to pay this price, he came to redeem, he came to free. He even said, I haven't come to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom payment, if you will, to free you, to free sinners, to free all those who would believe in me. You see, that's, that was why he came to redeem. And, and in that redemption, he changed everything. And the second blessing of all of this isn't just that we're redeemed, but we're adopted. Notice how he puts it. He said, God sent for this, for this son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, you know, you could be redeemed, that is, freed from the penalty and power of sin, and not adopted. But this adoption part, he says, no, 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 it comes with it comes with it, and then God takes you into his family, and he sees you as he sees his own son, and he receives you like that. So much so, look at how he puts it, he said, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Another little word, Abba, people have talked about it in various kinds of ways, but just best to think of it as the freedom to approach him, as the freedom to come to him, as the freedom to know him. No holds barred, just to come. Remember, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was at the, a deep point, I don't know if it's the deepest point of angst for Jesus, but if there was a deeper point, I don't know when it would have been, perhaps the cross. But there he was, at that moment in time, knowing exactly what's going to take place, knowing that he's going to be under the wrath of his father. I mean, when you think about that, it's just amazing. He knew what was to come. He's going to experience the worst that could ever happen to a person. And there he was. And what did he say? Abba, Father. He cried out like that. That's the cry that he, that he said. Now, we, we kind of think of it as a sweet thing to say, oh, Papa, Daddy, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And that's wonderful. But, but he knew it at the deepest moment of his life. And so at least we can say this, that at the deepest moment of our lives, we know that God hasn't forsaken us. We know that we can still go to him. Jesus went to his father at the deepest, darkest moment of his life. And, and, and he says, if this cup can pass, please uh, make it pass. But he went to his father with with every assurance that the Father would hear him, even then. 
And in every assurance that his father would answer him. And even though his father answered him, no, this cup can't pass. You must drink it. You must take it. That he could, he could live. He could be, he could get up. And he can go and do it. And he says, well, we're sons like that. We have the deepest assurance that we can go to our Father in our darkest moments and He'll receive us. He won't reject us. That's what it really means to be a son. That's what it really means to be family. You see, the slavery to the law is that if I break this, I'm out. Some, some of you may have been raised in families like that where the rules were such that you had no security that you really belonged because your fear was, if I break one of these rules, I'm out. And God says, no, 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 I've redeemed you. I've obeyed all the rules. I've paid for every failure, every sin of yours. And you're in. So now I'm going to send my spirit upon you to give you assurance of that so you know you're in. So even in the deepest and darkest moments of your life, you can call upon me and you know I will hear you and I will respond to you. I won't reject you. And say, well, what if I fail so desperately? He says, but my son hasn't failed. He, he, he already did it. Where you failed, he obeyed. Where you failed, he succeeded. Where you displeased me, he pleased me. So I look upon him, and, and, and so when you call upon me, then I, I can receive you, because that's already been dealt with, you see. He says, live with that kind of assurance, that spirit of adoption. Call upon me. You're my child. You say, well, isn't everybody a child of God? And you say, well, in one sense, sure, we're human beings, but not in this sense. Not in the real sense. How does he, how does he put it in, in John chapter 1? Uh, he says, verse 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believe, you see. And we are his, we belong to him. He won't cast us out. His son, Jesus, paid already as us, for us. By the initiation of God. Through the power of God. Through the intention of God. There was a time when the um, oh, TV personality interviewer now, I don't know what he does now. I think you could probably still find him at 3 o'clock in the morning on an infomercial. Larry King uh, was asked, you know, he interviewed everybody, if you're old enough to remember him, interviewed everybody, and he was asked on one occasion, if you could interview anybody, who would it be? And he said, Jesus. And they said, well, what would you ask him? And he said, 
I would ask him if he was virgin born. And the person said, why would you ask him that? He says, well, because that would then explain everything. Because if he's really born of a virgin, then he really is God with us. And if that's really true, then everything he is and everything that he said and everything he did must really be true. You go, yeah, it is. It's astounding, isn't it? You read through the Gospels, especially Matthew and Luke, and with these birth narratives, and they just seem so matter-of-fact. People are trying to hype this up. It's just, well, this is here, it is. These are real people, a real point in time, and real history happening here. And, okay, if that's true, if he's come, the Son of God, taking on human nature to save us. Surely he did. Romans 8 says, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, can't you trust him? I mean, he's given us his son. Can't you trust him? Even in the midst of the darkest moments. And he said, in the midst of the darkest moments, cry out to me. I'll be there. Even if it's your fault. I'll be there. And I won't cast you out. I'll hear you. I'll hear you. And we know that because he did give his son. And we know that because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, I'm redeeming you. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup. Again, after giving thanks to this too, he gave to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem us from the slavery to sin, that we might be adopted as his. Thus we would fear no more. Fear no more. Ravi Zacharias tells of a painting in a pastor's friend's office. And it's a painting of Jesus. I'm sure it conforms to the second commandment. Of Jesus holding the hand of a little girl. And the caption on the painting is the little girl saying to Jesus, what happened to your hand? Because she felt the scar. God has come, taken on human nature and given himself that we might be freed from the curse of the law and brought into his family. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you'll take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of this one whom you sent and who came and who gave himself that we might be redeemed 
this one who has brought us into your family, that we may be your children and live and trust in you. So, please, as we come to this table, remind us that we belong to you and to each other and enable us then to live free from fear, free from the fear that you will reject us because you have received us. May we love and accept one another as you've accepted us in Christ Jesus. And this I pray in Jesus' name.